Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table, with your hosts, Anna Wolfenden and Derek Weston. Hello. After a bit of a hiatus, we are back with new episodes of the Food and Faith Podcast. You may have noticed the new intro. Our good friend Sam Chamberlain is stepping away from the pod, but we are so grateful for all the work he did getting this show off the ground. And Sam, if you're listening, we love you, and we're keeping a seat warm for you. Today's episode is a part of the Just Kitchen project that Anna and I have been working on. You can stay tuned. In upcoming episodes, we'll have info on how you can pre-order the book, The Just Kitchen. Today's guest is Nikki Cooley. Nikki is of the Diné Navajo Nation and resides in northern Arizona. She is of the Towering House Clan, born for the Reed People Clan. Maternal grandparents are of the Water That Flows Together Clan, and paternal grandparents are of the Many Goats Clan. Nikki has a bachelor's and master's degree in forestry from Northern Arizona University with an emphasis on traditional indigenous knowledges. She speaks and teaches her children the Diné language and culture. Professionally, she is co-manager of the Institute for Tribal Environmental Professionals, Tribes and Climate Change Program, and interim assistant director of ITEP, whose goal is to strengthen tribal capacity and sovereignty in environmental and natural resource management through culturally relevant education, research, partnerships, and policy-based services. She works across the continental U.S. and Alaska on outreach and trainings related to climate change adaptation, mitigation, and resilience planning with tribal indigenous partners to assist tribal nations in addressing and preparing for climate change impacts. ITEP works in partnership with various federal, nonprofit, academic, and community entities. In addition, she serves as an author on the Human Health Chapter for the upcoming 5th National Climate Assessment and was most recently featured as a speaker for the 2022 Climate Reality Project training founded by Vice President Al Gore. Before we get started, I want to remind you that you can support the podcast through Patreon. Just go to www.patreon.com slash foodandfaithpodcast. Every little bit helps. Okay, here's our conversation with Nikki Cooley. Well, today we are so excited to have a good friend of mine and colleague who I've um, not spoken to in a few years, so I'm extra excited to catch up um, Nikki Cooley on our show. And um, Nikki and I first met at a Wake Forest Divinity event. I don't know, number, I don't know, it's been a while now, <laughs> like five years, six years, oh dear, I don't know how long ago, um, and I've crossed paths there a few times and um, in touch, but she is a a voice that I often have echoing in my head um, of her wisdom and her presence to um, what is right and true. So um, I'm just really, really thrilled, Nikki, to have you in conversation today. And um, I think that you and Derek have a lot of people in common, but it's my understanding this is the first time for you to be in conversation, which just always feels like it's like having, you know, good friends over to the house and uh, getting to introduce them to each other. So that's what, what this podcast feels like to me today. Oh, for sure. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for allowing me to be here with you both um, in this space. So we want to start off. Um, I know when you were on the podcast before with Sam, you, you, you probably answered this question already, but we want to ask you this question, and maybe you've had some new reflections on it. Um, what's your geography? What are the the lands, the people, the foods, the music, the culture that have shaped you and made you the person that you are today? 
I may have also said this in the last conversation. This is one of my favorite things to speak about because I am so in love with where I come from. Mm. My geography um, in growing up is still pretty similar to where I'm at today at 42 years old. It's full of juniper and pinion uh, trees, uh, sage, uh, bottle brush, and a lot of um, a lot of native plants uh, that can be used medicinally for food and for beauty, um, and a lot of spirituality um, that happens a lot when I walk amongst them. We have lots of sandstone and. Um, canyons, ravines, what used to be rivers and streams. Some are dry, some are being filled back up with the monsoon rains. And I love it so much um, because I, it's something that's so familiar to me, just like brushing my teeth and um, knowing what my favorite shirt is to wear um, every week. Mm. And uh, yeah, and you know, I love the animals too, even the snakes, the reptiles, the, the sheep, the churro sheep, um, angora, goats, horses, and, and deer that walk, that walk, walks among us. And um, I'll, I'll end with this, my, my, um, the geography is not just about, you know, the, um, the features of it, but the, also the other living beings that are amongst them and amongst us, you know, like the ants, um, the stink bugs that are coming out, the beetles, and um, yeah, and I and you know the coyotes. I just love to, I just love, I love that. Um, every day I go on a walk and I see all of them. Mm. And Nikki, maybe I, I may have, um, we, you know, we haven't caught up for a while. But are you, where are you living right now? Because I know that you um, grew up, or is it was it more like central? Uh, southern Arizona and then you were in Flagstaff area mm -hmm. am I remembering this correctly and wh where are you what this this uh, geography you're describing can you put it on a map for our listeners in terms of um, locating sure the the geography where I'm at right now is in Flagstaff Arizona I live 500 um, feet less in elevation which is like a few miles down from the Ponderosa pine forest that Flagstaff in, in northern Arizona is is known for. We're about three hours north of Phoenix, Arizona. And where I grew up, um, the, and I still live there, uh, Navajo Nation is is still western, what northern western Arizona, near like Lake Powell, Monument Valley area. I come from very small community, very but it's thriving and it produces some amazing leadership. Mm -hmm. um, Shanto, Arizona is what it's called. Uh, but my I have to recognize my mothers. My matriarchs come from Blue Gap, Arizona, which is more central Arizona, near Chinle Canyon de Chez, Arizona. But right now for work, I live in Flagstaff. But yeah, I, I'm still seeing Juniper and Pinion right outside. But if I drive six miles down the road, I'll be in Ponderosa Pine Forest. <laughs> It's beautiful and That's above beautiful. seven thousand feet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, thank you. I can feel it. I can feel it and smell it as you're um, describing it. Yes. Okay. My my family was in Flagstaff uh, over Christmas vacation, 
and we we got there just as it started to snow so my only experience of flagstaff is is completely covered in snow i think it was the maybe the first snow of the year so uh, I'll, I'll need to get out there at some point during a different time of the year although it was it was it was beautiful in the snow um so i want to ask you this question um that we've been asking recently um what was the geography of your kitchen growing up like what was what were the smells what were the tastes what were the things that uh when you think of your your childhood kitchen or kitchens um what are what are those things that that take you back to that space a lot of it is the feel and the smell familiar pots and pans um, that that we still use today mm. when I was growing up um, as a young girl on the, the Navajo Nation um, in my my small family homestead we often cooked outside in a place called Chaha'o which is the kind of like a shack house we call it made out of wood and tree branches for shade um, so um, kind of and then cooking on a on fire like open fires and a lot of uh, cast iron cast iron pots and pans that we used and also just kind of you know you put like a a, a metal is it metal or an iron grill over the hot coals mm -hmm. and then you put down you know whether it's mutton or cow or even just vegetables searing on there but also the dry bread you know it's kind of similar to tortillas uh, but thicker and we make our own dough and put it on there and just that smell kind of like when a, the hot coal kind of singes it mm. <laughs> that mm -hmm. smell comes I swear it like transports me back to grow, um, growing up and cooking alongside my, my family and often it was with my grandmothers I was so mm. fortunate to be around a lot of matriarchs talking so, you know like at a mile a minute and also giving out orders and you know the slap of the the bread between their hands you know as they flattened it um and while they stood with you know stood around talking or maybe gossiping and um so that that that's one of my uh favorite memories and even when i'm like in the you know in a modern kitchen we had modern kitchens back there but it just made more sense to cook outside where it was cooler and we had easy access, easy cleanup, easy access to, you know, wood and whatever we needed. Even now in a modern kitchen, when I get those smells, I, I am transported back to my childhood. And that's still some of us, we still cook, cook that way. Mm. Mm -hmm. I'm so struck by that idea of this cooking, the cooking outdoors piece. That's something we've, a few of our other guests have brought up, which it's, uh, that our kitchens extend outside of physical buildings, but it's it's the place that we cook, right? It's the it's place that we gather around and that the texture of kitchen, be it inside a building, outside, you know, some of both um, has so much more to do with the smells, the tastes, the feel than it does about how you know the mechanism for 
for the cooking, you know, whether it's over an open fire or on a electric stove. Um, and so I love the way that you're bringing that back in that, that it's, those smells can take you, take you back into that. Um, mm -hmm. What, and so tell us more about your, your kitchen um, here and now. And, um, and I, I know you have some, some kids too, and art, you know, what, what is, what is, what are your children's experience of, of kitchen and what's your experience of being um, in, in where, where you are uh, preparing food at this point? Yes, yes. It's in a, in a home that um, we have built, my partner and I have built together. And so it's in Flagstaff and I do have a 12-year-old a and an eight-year-old, but I do also have lots of other kids coming over, you know, like extended family, my nephew, my uh, two nephews and a niece that are always over here. And you know, we, we have a, we still cook on a stove and I like my first electric stove that my father-in-law gifted to us um, after we got married and we still use it. It's like, it's something that I never thought I would own. And I only thought that super rich people in movies owned those electric glass stoves. <laughs> and it was just amazing. And mind you, Derek and Anna, this house that I live in right now is completely a dream come true. Mm. A lot of the stuff I did not grow up with, you know, like elect electricity, my own shower, my own room. Um, and, but also my own kitchen, you know, we've always mm -hmm. had to share a lot of what we had growing up on the reservation. And not that I don't share it now, but then, you know, it was a community area, wherever you went, it belonged to, belongs to everyone. And everybody's in your space, you're in their space. And, um, you know, we have a routine in our kitchen is that, you know, we have, we make breakfast at a certain time and dinner at a certain time and eat lunch um, outside. And it's, it's still, it's still everybody's kitchen, but it's also something that I can call my own. Mm -hmm. And um, it's full. Yeah, it's just, there's a lot of love in that kitchen. And my husband built it specially to accommodate me because <laughs> I love, I love to cook. I love to bake and I love to host people over family, mostly um, come over and have dinners um, or lunches and have a game night. So it's, it's not one of those you see in like home and garden magazines or you see <laughs> on social media. Like it's all, it's, it's, you know, there's dirty parts of it. There's dusty parts of it. It's very clean, but it's also you walk into that kitchen and you know it's used and loved, mm -hmm. and yeah. everyone is welcome there. And my my sisters will walk in and they'll just borrow whatever, and they don't need to ask. Mm. Yeah, it's beautiful. My, it sounds like it's alive. <laughs> yes, yes, living. Yeah. I, I was about to yeah. say my my uh, uh, my friend. Jason, uh, who's been on the show, likes to describe our kitchen as feeling very lived in. And mm -hmm. I, I actually really like that as opposed to it being kind of a, a sterile place where there's not life happening. It's a very, it's a very, you know, it's, it's, it's messy and, and, but it's, it's a very lived in space. Absolutely. Beautiful. Um, I, I, I have, I, I'm, I'm writing down things as, as you, as you talk. So I, I, I want to try and make sure that we, we cover as much as we can. Um, and I want to come back to your current kitchen, but I want to, I want to go back to this idea 
of the kitchen you grew up with and this idea of of kind of like uh if you if you could a little bit just kind of dig into that experience of 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 this group of matriarchs cooking outside like there's something about that that captures my imagination of like what are those conversations are recipes being i mean you said some of it's some of it's gossip and that's cool too um but like like our recipes and cooking techniques and things like that being passed on there um is that a place where like the the events of the day are being shared like i just just talk to us a little bit about that 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 circle of matriarchs cooking that you grew up with sure and and where I grew up in, I'm sure this is how it is in many other communities or households that uh, the kitchen or this area, cooking area, is thought of as as a woman's space. Mm. But in our in our family or community, um, it's actually known as everyone's space. As I said, my kitchen is one of the, that that space for everyone to come in and to be. And um, but it's the matriarchs that are you know the bosses. <laughs> They're the ones that <laughs> the final word, the final say goes through them. And you really do look to them for direction um, or guidance and including how to properly make dough, how to properly uh, cut up meat or vegetables, the right time to add these ingredients. What time should you be starting them the night before or early in the mornings? Uh, and even when you were, were uh, butchering a sheep, you know, we provide prayer, we provide thanks before we move on with the butchering process. And the women are talking the whole time and the men are too. I just happen to hear my matriarch's voices um, over everybody else's. And <laughs> yes, so in a sense, Derek, yeah, the recipes and um, methods are being shared and, and passed on. And there's always a little bit of, you know, a sharp tongue, you know, like, don't, don't mess around with that. Don't do this. Mm. Don't do that. But mistakes are allowed to happen also, mm. because that's, the only, that's one thing I learned is always know that mistakes are, will happen, but they can't keep happening. Mm. And it's just like bustling with energy and, and space. And there's always two aunties, right? And, or grandma that's yelling out directions, um, from across the, the room or that space and it's just beautiful it's just so much fun kids are running in and out being careful of you know sharp objects the hot spaces and whatnot but kids are allowed to be in that space and mm. they might be asked to do something to help out but it's okay we don't we don't we don't keep anyone out so it's just yeah lots of laughter lots of teasing is the other thing I, I forgot to mention that it happens a lot in, in these areas in these spaces and um, it's just so so much fun and no one can get away with it if we know someone's missing and not pulling their weight we'll bring them in <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh well isn't that truly like multi-generational space I mean that's there's something so so beautiful about that. Um, I'm curious, you mentioned, um, you know, you, one of the things that we've been exploring in this book is, you know, where, where is there equality in the kitchen? Where is the inequality? And obviously often um, the kitchen has been a very gendered place. Um, certainly there have, you know, been racial oppression that has taken place in, in kitchens over generations. Um, 
But the fact that you mentioned that the men are there too and the matriarchs are in charge. Um, I, I'm just curious if you would be willing to share a little bit more about how is that is that a difference than other places in the the family um, sphere? Is that a is that um, indicative of those relationships in general, or is is the kitchen a place that there may be some shifting in in gender equality within within that bigger family system? So yeah, I, I think it can be indicative, and I think I, you would know or would say that this is depends on the family or it depends on the community. Sure. I hope I'm answering your question um, right that in the sense that some, yeah, I've been to some kitchens where, um, you know, it's all women and they, and there's a very clear line that men don't go in there, not because they're not allowed. It's because they don't want to, mm-hmm. or they're taught that space is not for them or that's women's work. Yeah. Um, but I have never seen that in my in my family. They are they, they, you'll see a large number of women and children in there, um, but men definitely get um, asked to do um, take care of specific tasks and and whatnot. So yeah, I, I think it's very indicative, like uh, indicative of where um, uh, how this family was taught and how I, I don't know who who whoever started passing along that kind of rule that women only in the kitchen. And I'm, it's not to say that those types of um, perspectives don't exist in my own family. I know it does. And I, you know, um, give them a hard time for it. And, and <laughs> you know, like that things are changing and that uh, we shouldn't say those kind of things anymore, especially in front of our young children um, that every space should be everyone's space. Can we can we talk a little bit about the specifics of what's being cooked? And, and again, I want to I want to think a little bit both in terms of uh, what you grew up with and kind of what what you're eating now. Um, like what you know, you've mentioned things like like. Um, cows and mutton and, and, and even butchering. Um, and I want to come back to that a little bit, but you know, what were you eating? Where was it sourced? How, how was, um, how did things get to the table and, and how has that changed? How's that process changed over, over the years? What a great question. You know, we, we grew up in, um, largely when I say we, my brother and I, I have seven, six siblings, there's seven of us, but the older ones, we grew up mostly in my grandparents, um, down house down the road. And, uh, we didn't, like I mentioned, we didn't have electricity running water. So we had to haul a lot of our own water to drink. And, uh, we had a flock of sheep, like over a hundred head, um, and goats. And we, I would be the one mostly herding sheep for, um, for the family, mm. herding them for long distances. So I was very much tasked with that role. And also my family, like every other family grew corn, squash, melons, beans, uh, whatever they could uh, grow. And that's kind of where we literally sourced our food was from the land. Mm. And I would pick wild onions and carrots and other plants, um, like for salads and stuff, wild spinach, uh, very much aware of that was a big part of my childhood. I do have to mention that it was inter- 
intertwined with um, the government's um, insertion of what we should be eating. So mm -hmm. commodity government issued foods. I, that at times, you know, we didn't have either enough or somebody didn't cook. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I was eating spam and mm -hmm. I was eating canned pork, beef, disgusting, like half of it was fat, um, powdered eggs. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it was really awful food, but I ate it <laughs> because there was nothing else to eat. Um, yeah. Otherwise I would not be eating. And we lived far from town. We didn't have a grocery store nearby. We had a trading post uh, about seven miles down the road, but that required gas and money. And once in a great moon, I would get a big hunk candy bar for my grandmother. And that was uh, such a treat. Uh, I still look at that candy bar with such fondness because it brought such joy. Um, so, so that was, uh, and that was kind of growing up and I, and we did, you know, like during harvest time, we were so rich in watermelon and cantaloupe and corn that we'd either dry or we would cut the corn, you know, off the cob and then grind it to make, and then we would put it in uh, the corn husks, fill it, and then we would bake it underground or in an oven. And we'd make, you'd make bread. We call it kneel down bread or sitako in Navajo and you can dry that to make it like kind of de in a dehydrated, dehydrated stage hmm. and then re you know re revive it with water or soup and it's really good um uh bread that you can it can last um all year hmm. so that's uh yeah and then a lot of a corn soup vegetable soup is what I ate um so yeah, and uh, but yeah, mostly it was sheep and goat that we ate. Sometimes beef that was a, a a luxury for sure. And also, I do have to say we did butcher horses, but only for medicine. They're very powerful medicine that you only butcher when needed and only once a year in the winter mm -hmm. time. Um, and then transitioning to boarding school where I went um, until eighth grade where I stayed in the dormitory and then we had a cafeteria. And I have to say, we had some really good cooks. We had mm. some really good food that I was exposed to at the boarding school level. And people may disagree with me, but I really enjoyed it. And <laughs> really good cooks. Um, I, I, I can't remember exactly what kind of foods, but I remember um, having vegetable casserole for the first time there. And that was mind blowing to me that you could make a dish like this um, and, mm -hmm. make it, and you know, just being really creative with, with what you had. And then transitioning to my young adult life, um, you know, you're exposed to vending machines that have Twinkies and Mountain Dew in it. <laughs> <laughs> and you just went crazy. <laughs> and, I, I, and I went to a high school where, um, and then, a high school here in Flagstaff but I stayed at a dormitory for Native American students so we stayed at that dorm and it was essentially like going to college where right. you stayed in the dorm and you did you clean after yourself and they had a cafeteria which had really good food also um, but I remember um, snacks were not really provided I, I don't think that's something that entered their mind minds to have 
I remember being hungry quite quite a bit. You know, when you're a teenager, you want to eat and eat mm-hmm. and keep growing. And I was playing sports, and I remember being so hungry. I'm like, when I grow up, I'm going to eat whatever I want when I have money. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did. That's why I ate Twinkies and Mountain Dew every morning for a year <laughs> in college. <laughs> so gross. I believe I did that. <laughs> But now I'm, I'm back to where I started. It's like full circle. I try, we, we, ha, we eat really good. We eat really healthy. We cook almost all our own foods. And a lot of it's farm to table. Uh, we have a lot of Native American, Navajo and Hopi farmers right down the road that I, mm-hmm. I source my, my food from. And in fact, also my mom just finished um, harvesting all her corn from her little cornfield and gave me some. And so I'm going to make some soup and save some for the next year for that. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I like that question. So my, my, my eating habits or my, 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 my foods have come full, full circle. I now know the value of eating very well. And my kids, I'm very proud to say, don't like soda. They hate the taste of it. <laughs> they Congratulations. Yeah, and they love candy, but they know they have to moderate it. And they drink lots of water. And they drink water, they eat lots of vegetables. Excellent. And hopefully they won't go through their Mountain Dew phase when they're in high school, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, And I want to just pick up something that you just uh, shared a bit ago. um, And what reminds me of this full circle is... um, just the intentionality and the connectedness that comes when you are sourcing your food, whether it's, you know, being grown um, by your family and, you know, you talked about herding the sheep or when you're connected with the farmers um, nearby, Um, how might you describe like the faith practices that, that come into that? Um, You mentioned earlier when you're talking about growing up of um, the prayers that were said before you would, um, you know, butcher an animal. Um, I'm curious to learn a little, hear a little bit more about what that looks like, but also how, how does that come full circle? What is, what is your spiritual practice, your intentional practice around um, the, the pure procuring of food and the preparing of food um, in your, in your kitchen and in your life now? Yes. Um, very intentional. I am very intentional with the, the food that I eat and talking and remembering and or maybe acknowledging where it came from, knowing that, um, you know, the, our most likely our Hispanic relatives, um, Mexican relatives have picked some of the, most of the foods that we buy from the grocery store. And I make sure my kids know that. And because um, no one taught us that growing up, no one ever mentioned it. And it was something that I had to learn on my own. So I really need my children to be mindful of that, of the hardship that a lot of these field workers are going through so we can have it when we want it. And when mm-hmm. the, the corporate America told, tells us this is the season for this kind of fruit, this is the season, when in actuality, you know, it's not, it's not true. It's all yeah. about selling, right? And so I, 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 we always try to say a prayer, um, uh, give thanks to people who have farmed and sourced out those types of food. And it's also um, 
I guess, um, great that my husband is from a farming family in Iowa where they grew soybeans and corn, but like on a commercial scale, um, not to what it is now. And so he tells them a lot about those stories, even when we went back through um, Iowa this past summer, that we talked a lot about where these go. And it's a different type of corn that from what their grandmother and grandfathers grow here on the Navajo Nation. And, and so we try to be very mindful of that practice and one mm -hmm. of the practices that we do again like I like you said we honor every plant and every animal that we harvest butcher for our consumption and so when we're ready to butcher a sheep or a goat maybe even a cow and a horse um, that we get a branch of pinion a pinion tree and we kind of just brush it brush the sheep and the goat the animal with it and while we're giving thanks and we really appreciate it all that stuff and then we yeah we say a little prayer and then mm -hmm. when we consume the food we bless ourselves you know instead of wiping our hands and our mouths on a napkin we actually rub our hands together and lotion ourselves maybe with the grease or a little plant and then we we rub our legs and our arms with it and we say we will be strong and healthy because we were given this wonderful food um, that um, was grown so we could consume it and be healthy um, so a lot of a lot of that even when we eat we drink water and give thanks before uh, after we pray uh, every time and um, and sometimes you know like every time maybe on the reservation a lot more but here in our family we do do it um and um so yeah i, I hope that's that's kind of where mm. what you where you were getting at with that question it's a really good one you know yeah that's all that i was getting at and more and i um i love hearing the specifics of those practices too it's really um feels inspiring and and invitational to think about how do we be intentional? Um, we've been talking to a lot of our guests and reflecting, uh, Derek and I, just on what are the things that we just kind of do without thinking about and how do we use the kitchen as this place where we can actually intentionally um, engage in, in spiritual practices or in practices of intention and it's such a rich exploration. And I, I just have learned so much um, from our guests about what that can look like. Um, so yeah, thank you for sharing with that. And I, I'm also struck by um, both the individual and the collective practices that you described. And I think that's something that I, um, I mean, if you have further reflection on it, but that this is the way that our kitchens are our cooking areas, whatever, whatever that looks like, um, are places where we interact with others, but they're also places where we are interacting with ourselves. And it's that reminder when you said, you know, blessing your own body and that it will be healthy and strong because of engaging in that food. It sounds like there's something that's, that's healing in that. There's something that can be, um, you know, transformative in that, in, in oneself in, by engaging in that practice. Um, I don't know if I really have a question as much as just it's, 
it's sparking a lot of thoughts as I hear you share. So thank you for that. Yeah, and I, I do want to say something. Say something to that. Um, it's a very, it's 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 really compelling to think about. You know, being mindful. It's not just about chewing your food slowly to savor the taste and the smells of it, but thinking beyond. You know, I think it's at a really high level of spirituality that we we should be thinking about our foods not only because of where they're sourced from and or what you know who sort who who sourced them and and transported them to where we're at but it, it is really healing because um you're being more aware of your surroundings and of yourself and your fellow um um cohort that are you're eating with or you're eating around and it's just something and you're I guess you're really appreciative more appreciative of the food that comes comes your way especially if they have a story behind it you know somebody's zucchini bread um, could have been passed down so many generations that they use the same recipe and you don't know those stories unless you ask or you hold a dinner dinner party and I I truly love that you know for example we had a a dinner party where one of our my sister and I we have a professor a common professor um, that educated us at the local university and her and her husband are from like I think Minnesota and he's Norwegian and so they came over to partake in some uh, mutton stew that we made. And it's always shocking to me when non-Indigenous or non-Navajo people like mutton, <laughs> especially that's one we know, know where it came from, because depending on where it was raised, it can have a really strong taste to those who aren't used to it. And so, but they just ate it up and I was really surprised. And I said, you know, for being white people from I don't, from Norway or Minnesota, I, I, I'm glad that you like it. And it turns out that the Norwegians also consume in mutton and they have some, a lot of the, some similar practices and how the, the, where they source it, but also how they butcher it. Um, and they consume all of it. They don't waste anything. And so I thought that was really neat. And it brought us really close together. And I think it kind of, there was always some type of hesitancy in our relationship with her and her husband, but it really brought us even closer um, after that dinner party. So I really get it what you mean when you say it's healing in many ways you didn't realize that you needed to be healed. Mm-hmm. That's really great. Um, it's a beautiful story, and and and, and also, I mean, it kind of hits on one of the things that we talk about on the show a lot, which is just the way that food can be unifying, and the way that eating is universal, and the ways that it can connect us in some really profound ways. Um, I wanted to zoom out a little bit from your kitchen because you said something earlier that's kind of. Um, uh, I don't know, struck a bell in my head, I guess. Um, you talked about the government issued food at the reservation. And when we, we have, we talked a lot on the show about um, what have been called food deserts, what we now kind of refer to as food apartheid. 
and and the the ability of of different groups to access food and we often talk about that in terms of the inner city and black and brown communities in the city um, we know that there is massive amount of uh, food insecurity in rural areas where food is actually grown but i don't know that we I'm pretty sure we haven't talked about it here, but like, I don't even know how much it's in the popular conscience to think of a reservation as a place that might be struggling with food insecurity. Um, and so I'm just, I'm kind of interested in, in, you know, and some of that was, was your growing up experience. So I'm kind of interested in, um, do you, are are reservations still today a place where food insecurity is um, that widespread? Is it still sort of the canned beef, which even just saying that makes me want to gag a little bit, but like the sort of um, uh, these large consumer products, these government issue consumer products are available and not much that's fresh or healthy. Um, what's, what is the food landscape like in reservations when we're talking about things other than what you're sourcing for yourself? It's an important question that you ask. And I really believe that more people, actually everyone in the US and even the world should know about this the answer to this question. Um, and I, I'll start out with this by saying that, you know, reservations are under the jurisdiction of the Secretary of Interior. We are, most of our lands are held in trust by the US government. Now there are some tribal nations who have an own private property that they've acquired themselves. They also have allotments, you know, lands that were allotted to them, but sometimes they also rent it out to non-Indigenous people. Um, and third, some of these lands were, um, were given to them by the government, but they were also allotted to be rented out to these private non-Indigenous owners mm. under a 99-year or more year contract. So... They can't break that contract until it runs out, and they can. The tribes can choose to um, renew it or not renew it. Um, sometimes these leased lands are in the middle of the reservation, um, so I, it's really important to start out with that. And the second is the misconception that a lot of people think, and I still get this today. A lot of our relatives in Canada and the U.S. get this um, that. Native American tribes get handouts, monetary and materialistic handouts from the U.S. government. So there are tribes that have casinos, very successful casinos by their own right. And this is, I, I love this, but they also, these tribes, then the profit goes back to the people. Mm -hmm. um depending yeah i don't and that that's their own business how much they give out but sometimes it can be a lot and and i think then people on miss kind of um confuse the two um like government handout and then the tribes giving their own money their own profits back to their own people um a lot of this these reservations are also have rural communities 
and I'm going to talk about my own and then what I know about the Hopi Reservation. We are, we live in a very rural area. My home from Flagstaff to Shanto is about two hours, two and a half hours. If my dad drives, it's about an hour. <laughs> so, <laughs> <drive so> fast. <laughs> so, and you know, and the where we live in Shanto, okay, Lake Powell, Page, Arizona is about 65 miles. So it's about 45 minutes to 50 minutes. Tuba City and Kayenta, the two next biggest towns on the reservation are at least 30 minutes away mm-hmm. or more. And that's a gas, that's gas money right there. Mm-hmm. That's gas mm-hmm. money, that's time and money that you may not, um, that you may be forced to choose between. And then where I live, about 10, 11 miles down the road is a place called Shanto Marketplace. It's a gas station. We get tons of tourists passing through and a little market and a pint of strawberries can cost eight dollars and above Mm. pint of strawberry they have fresh foods in this small section in the corner but the prices are ridiculous yeah and i don't know if you can even use ebt or wic to buy those foods i don't know but then the rest of the store is filled with processed junk food Mm-hmm. And okay, so the, then Tuba City and Kanta have grocery stores. And that's one, that's two of the 13 that exist on the Navajo Nation. And the Navajo Nation in itself is in three states, oh, and it covers maybe 7 million acres. 7 million acres. Wow. And I emphasize that point because it's rural. And a lot of our, our family members do not have gas money to buy it. And then when they get there, you know, what do they want or afford? What do they want? They want the good stuff, but they also want a treat. Um, so there, and then, and then, or if they have the money, they buy the cheapest ramen noodles, cup of noodles, mm-hmm. uh, chips, that, that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, a bag of white rice. We don't have jasmine rice on the reservation. That's only in off-reservation stores. So that, that, that's the point there, that, that there's a definite need for more grocery stores, um, not Walmarts. I'm not talking about Walmart super stores or anything like that. But like we need more grocery stores um, to give access to these people and then or and, and maybe to even lower the prices. I don't know how we can um, do that in such a vast reservation. There is hope in the in in these frontline communities, what I like to call them, because they are some of the most rural communities that have these community members that res- probably um, um, are are hungry for good foods, and they're often the ones that don't are low income that don't have the means. So these some community members um, have created these nonprofits or these small organizations to grow foods and put small gardens in people's home, near people's homes mm-hmm. and then kind of teach them again what our ancestors were doing but we were removed from it for many reasons um and i could that's a whole nother podcast there but you know for a lot of this assimilation and the forced relocations boarding schools um, that kind of mentality still sticks with a lot of people that are my father and mother's age. And so we're kind of reteaching um, and encouraging our people to grow their own foods and have these community markets um, and then far- local farmer- farmers markets 
but we do have organizations that go to these communities and hold food drives for them so they can get good foods. And I will end with this in Flagstaff. Flagstaff is a border town community, meaning that it borders the reservation. And I don't know how much money, millions of dollars that our Native American communities invest in these border towns. And one of the things that one of our local community members has done is to provide space for local, uh, maybe not local, but um, Native American farmers to have a space at their Sunday and Wednesday farmers markets to sell their goods. I don't know if he charges them um, a booth space. Maybe after a trial period he does, but he allows that, which I think is fabulous because mm -hmm. we have farmers that come from, or, you know, vendors that come as far as Tucson or Yuma. Mm. And, they, wow. and it's kind of like a first come first serve, or if you have the money to pay for that space, not anymore. He's providing that, you know, that space for them and which is really neat. Um, and also uh, you can use EBT and WIC at the farmer's markets now. Mm -hmm. So he, so that that I, I'm going off on uh, on this, but um, it's really important that people know that we we don't have grocery stores um, mm -hmm. like we need to, and yeah. our, and if we do, they're far away from our. Um, they're not easily accessible. Well, and it sounds like they aren't um, accessible financially either, right? I mean, eight dollars for strawberries—that's not. So yeah. So they're, they're inaccessible on multiple levels. Mm hmm Yeah. I so appreciate you answering that question so thoroughly and um, yeah. agree that it's just, it's it's a piece of education that we all who are living in this on this set of land in this country um, should be aware of and um, <laughs> and not to I mean I, I'm hesitating to jump straight to the like and you know what needs to change and how do we help because I know that that's 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 a you know that can be such a colonizer mindset sitting here as a you know white a woman but oh. so I'm trying I'm trying to not say that but to also say my heart is moved similarly to how it's moved when I think about um you know food apartheid um for our black and brown siblings and you know cityscapes that I'm I'm just curious. I, I think I, I think I know more about that scene, so I have more of an awareness of how am I participating in that system. So maybe maybe my question, a better way to phrase the question is: So I, I'm living in you know suburbia-ish, small, medium-sized town. Um, I am not close to a particular reservation, um, and I'm aware that I am connected to this and uh, you know if you if you had any offerings for someone like me or any of our guests who are sitting saying okay uh, you know how, how am I how can I impact and how am I unknowingly impacting that the, that bigger system um, kind of a clunky way of, of saying what my heart is feeling right now <laughs> yeah yeah well, um, I, I would I would say, you know, just uh, bring your what you're doing now, you're bringing awareness and you're providing that foundation, the platform, should I say, for people to learn more about what we're talking about. You know, there's so much to your name of the podcast. 
um, food and faith. Um, it goes beyond what we just read on a piece of paper or what we read on the website or um, is to bring awareness. Um, it really is all about education, but also the awareness of every level of you know, the, the issues that come about, but also the hope um, that is out there about the regarding the solutions um, that our relatives are helping each other. So no one goes hungry, no one is um, malnourished in whether it's what they're eating, but also they're, you know, in their hearts and whatnot. And that's what I've always said um, to journalists who have interviewed me to talk about tribes and climate change, because um, that's my main work. I really like to talk about that. Um, and um, is that I appreciate them providing the platform because they have a platform that I am not really interested in doing myself <laughs> and I'm not very good at it, but to get notice um, of not um, of me, but the topic at issue at hand. It's so important. I would encourage you and Derek to keep doing this. And you have been very diverse in your guests on the podcast. I think that's really important. The fact that you're asking these questions, you, you don't know what the ripple effect of that is going to be. You know, maybe that will be thought provoking to other listeners on the, uh, of the show. I do have to say that, you know, I feel like sometimes I'm a, broken record that's just playing it over and over again what I'm saying and the questions that are asked of me and it doesn't matter if it's climate change traditional knowledges this podcast about food and faith but it's it's not you it'd be surprised at how many people need to hear what we're talking about and mm. people need to hear the questions you are asking so they can ask the hard questions of themselves or other people so important and I think that's one thing that the, um, is it the regenerate, the gatherings mm -hmm. that we had taught me yeah. basically. And um, let me get emotional. Take your time. I was trying not to cry. Tears are um, welcomed on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Good. And, you know, when we met at those regenerate gatherings, when I met Fred um, in Tucson a uh, couple years or a year before that, and he started bringing me into the, these gatherings, I think I was broken. I think a lot of us are when it comes to faith based um gatherings or just um discussions and and also even around food you know and you know these the name of your podcast brings those two the things that are really important to me not just because i like eating not because i know i need to pray um to the holy people but people talk a lot about the historical trauma and it's very much true. It's very much embedded, I think, in our genetics, in the genetics of our mental and spiritual uh, parts of us as human beings. 
And, and so I just, you never know who's listening and who needs to hear these questions being asked and the answers that one person is giving and the ripple effects, I think will just be, I don't know if you all know them, but it's going to happen out there. And that's why I'm always very much willing to talk about what I just talked about and to answer these hard questions. You know, they're not only thought provoking to me, um, but to others, but they're also healing. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to say these things out loud. And, and so, you know, it can provide some comfort to us, but also to others. I'm always thinking about other people. And I think that's, why we do these you know do we have these discussions and so i just i just wanted to say that to to you both is that this is more than a interview for a podcast i mean i know it took a while over a month for us to get together um but i i had no hesitation in saying yes to anna and to david and to fred and to sam and 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 whoever wants to talk about this because it's something that's really, really important to me and that I bring to my life every day, but also my work. So I just want to say thank you. I appreciate both of you. Well, and thank you for saying that. And I think one of the things that I have experienced, and, and this, this is coming from my own experience as an, as an African-American, is just digging into this history as, as I've been doing a lot more research about black food history and, and all of the things that are associated with that. And a lot of that history is very ugly and very messy and tied up with some of the worst parts of our country. But as I have those conversations and as I get my hands in the dirt and grow things, and as I listen to people re retell their stories, that there is some healing that takes place and there is some, there's some liberation that begins to happen. And, and, and I would add that, you know, one of the things, you know, I, I'm a person who likes to come into these interviews and these conversations researched. And I, I felt very like, um, I felt very inadequate coming into this conversation because I, I I knew there were things that I wanted to know and I didn't know exactly how to answer them and you've just been so forthcoming and honest and passionate about all these things that you've shared um it's it's made it so much easier for me to be able to to really like zoom in on those things that like, yeah, that's, that's a piece I needed to hear. And that's a piece that our audience needs to hear. So I, I appreciate, I appreciate your willingness. And um, I'm, I'm just so grateful we've been able to have this conversation. Um, and I want to pivot uh, and, and, and kind of ask you um, because, because of these hard things and these hard circumstances, we, we, we always like to end with this question of, what gives you hope? And it's not not a hope that ignores these big situations, these big issues, but it's the hope that, the kind of hope that gets you up in the morning and says, yeah, I'm going to keep doing what I do, um, whether that's about teaching about your ancestral heritage or working about on, on issues of climate change. What are, the, what are the things that are giving you hope today? 
again, one of my favorite questions, not that I get asked it a lot, um, <laughs> <laughs> is something that we talk about is hope, is maybe going full circle again to when we started the conversation and I talked about my matriarchs and, um, and how they went through what they could, what they went through so I could be here living the best life that I can and, and thriving the way I am is because of them. And whether, I mean, it started from time immemorial to the long walk to, you know, my, you know, whatever, my my grandmother's a breast cancer survivor, you know, but they also went through a lot of um, hardship in the, when, you know, getting married, being, raising children on their own, um but yeah and 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 praying and making offerings uh to the holy people going through ceremony so i could be here and and now i like to tell the story about my daughter when she was born 12 years ago on uh, that it was uh, labor is one of the hardest things i've ever done and it was painful but my husband said to me my partner in life said to me remember what your matriarchs went through so you could be here Mm. giving birth to our first daughter and she's like remember your grandmother said she gave birth to your father under a june um a juniper tree Mm. by herself in at night you know you know so and that does give me hope because imagine feeling so alone and in such pain but yet you're bringing this beautiful life into this world and and then he grows up to be this amazing man who's uh, given her, I think, amazing grandchildren. And <laughs> <laughs> so that it really does. That's what I that's what I say to myself all the time. My ancestors survived so I could be here. And that really does give me hope. And then, of course, our children, they're just I have like the happiest some two of the happiest children. And I'm sure you you both do. Um, but yeah, they just give me so much hope every day. They're just so happy. And um, it's hard to be, to stay grumpy around them <laughs> and, and whatnot. So it's the matriarchs, my ancestors, and also my children. Yeah. So like a theme of today has been about full circle. And that feels like it, that, that, that completes that full circle. Well, I'm just so grateful for your generosity and your um, willingness to bring tears to our eyes and um, your heartfelt way of, of walking in this world. You've really blessed um, blessed us and I know our listeners as well um, in your willingness to, to mm-hmm. share. And um, I am looking forward to when we can share a meal together again. That's, that's my... That's my hope. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Where, wherever that is. So um, thank you so, so much. And I um, look forward to when we, we all gather and we'll get, get Derek around that physical table as well as the virtual one as well. Um, before, before we go, Nikki, where are some places that people can connect with you and the work that you're doing? Oh, probably social media and my website. I can send you those 
uh, it's better by email. Okay. But yeah, and the the work that I do on my website, um, not my website. I don't have my website yet, but my work is probably where to really connect with me. <laughs> okay. So I'll do that. Great. We'll make sure that that's that's included in show notes that we do for the show. Okay. Well, thank you both. I appreciate it, and I'm I'm honored again to be part of this, and I look forward to it. And I have to say, Sam and Anna's your the podcast you uh, interviewed me for was my first one. Really? <laughs> oh, I had no idea. You were such a pro. I never would have guessed. <laughs> I, oh, that's that's great. Well. I hope this was not the second one. I hope other people have had the gift of of your voice in the last three years. That's wonderful. Well, I hope the rest of your day goes well and we'll we'll be in touch when this is going to come out. Yes, please. Definitely. Have a great day to both of you and uh, we'll we'll speak soon. All right. Thank you again so much. All right. I'll go then. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep and Till. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org.